0: Adepta, the debut long player from Rizla, is a record of emotional dissonance. Marked by frenetic production, Rizla preserves the spirit of dancehall rhythm and acts as a mirror to the state of club culture. Their album induces more questions than answers. Perhaps this is because they represent abstractions to avoid glib critiques of colonialism within club culture which often replicate the power relations between colonizer and colonized. Here, Rizla's furtiveness is a void, a space created and sustained by their desire to examine the club as a territory already intuited as vacant and arduous. If Adepta is the music of the vessel depicted on its cover, then, in it, Rizla moves in a symbol world where gestures of surrender, survival and belonging, permeate. By the end of the album, you'll find a likely vision of what Rizla's future in the club might entail. Removal, even as a possible outcome to Adeptus storyline, Rizla's dissension is an unexpected and powerful instance. Their stress on circularity is one that sets Adept off strongly, and Rizla's account of history is a repeated cycle of estrangement and displacement. Perhaps this is why Rizla's debut is a beginning, an end, and should be recognized as a forgiving gesture to anyone that also needs rescue from the nightclub. Here is Rizla, on Record Room.
1: Adepta is the inside of the vessel on the cover, which is a sort of hybrid between a boat and a cathedral. The idea is a long, increasingly isolated journey and the resonant sounds and music that one hums in one's head during that process. So it's like remnants of club experiences and club beats as the foreground statement that connects them all as like dance music, but no one's really dancing. Uh, You're more tapping on the walls uh, in beat than uh, having the sort of luxury to be able to, to dance. But it's not torturous, <laughs> you know, no at all. It and it actually is very danceable. And that's sort of the finalizing part of it is making it a little bit more danceable because I didn't want to make an anti-club statement or to move on, quote-unquote, from everything I love about music. Mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't trying to go noise or anything like that because yeah. all of the music that I like is essentially dance music. And to do anything other than, like, nod my hat to other styles I would feel to be disingenuous so
2: yeah it would be and it's not I also think that you know Adepta really captures kind of the ethos of kunk and the way that across that community you guys are just doing really excellent work to decolonize club culture club music in ways that are not Mm anti-club you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) but are actually I mean it's it's a really hopeful (laughs) thing to see sort of happen organically and naturally Mm -hmm. and you know, you and False Witness and Shy Boy, like all the work is in conversation with each other and mm-hmm. to have a full length project mm-hmm. from you, not just for like a, a kind of thesis statement, but also just because now we have a commodity mm-hmm. album that
1: literally you can buy into without mm-hmm. compromising. The buy into part is something that I really always struggle with right. because of course. while I want to and basically whenever someone's like oh can i have the record i'll be like here's a zip here it is would well, you want it in wave Do you want it mp3 like i'm not so interested in i mean i don't even have a what do you i don't even know what you hard call drive. It. no no the, the, <laughs> hard, the hard drive i've acquired but i'm not like registered with any of those music services mm-hmm. like i don't license like, i don't license shit. anything yeah. like i don't have a a whatever you call it. I don't even know what you call it. Those things you sign up for the artist fund distribution things. That's how Tune I mean, core whatever. Yeah. yeah. People have been like, you need to sign up for that. I'm like, yeah, I do. Don't I? <laughs> There's something about even with live shows, like it's, I, I just, I hate the, the financial aspect of it, but it's so hard to manage and imagine sustaining labor without compensation so the idea of buying into something like I'm, I'm excited about it being a physical object uh, so I have two physical objects uh, to my name under Rizla which is maybe maybe there'll be a third one sooner than this last one because of the rate I've been working on new things lately but um, I want to keep questioning what decolonizing this sort of music or what role this music may play in colonization itself um, and I never want to stop asking those questions. Some of that for me means decentering myself from the physical nature of the club and kind of allowing myself to enjoy the work of others that I really love around me without necessarily needing to claim any sort of ownership over it, which is something that as people get older in music, they don't like to talk about. But like people tend to try and find ways of attaching themselves to younger people. Uh, Before they realize what's going on, yeah, it's vampiric. I don't want to replicate that experience. I just—that's also why, as a remixer, you've always
2: been an excellent person (laughs) because that comes through in
1: that body of work, especially clear. You know, that was always what I was trying to say, and there was also like aspects of gender that I can only articulate through. Not necessarily production, but remixing, mm-hmm. and there was a certain sort of hard femme energy that I only felt I was able to like really speak to in that sort of space. and a lot of the reasons that I kind of allowed what used to be bootlegs turn into more official sort of relationships, but still kind of do the same sort of sound and treat the voices with the same level of respect that I can only understand as a a highly gendered experience that I'm really careful with nowadays. And some of even stuff I've done in the past, I'm almost will cringe at, but not in a way where I wish it didn't exist on the internet, but in a way where I'm like, damn, I'm lucky I got to learn in public this way.
2: like when I casually listened to it I know it was a file of all the masters and I think like for the first week I was sitting with it I was like I haven't quite unlocked the full album and then I went and found the track list on the Bandcamp page and then in iTunes resequenced it and like
1: opened a Chakra. <laughs> the the sequence like definitely matters and that was one of the funny things about the zip of just unlisted track order. It doesn't have the, the same kind of clarity of narrative that the other one does and it's just as much mine as the proper order one is because It was totally created chaotically, and there wasn't a clear path forward as far as the story it was telling until I started making them all, like, work with each other. They were all made in very different sound spaces, like, through sound design, and some of them actually were not even tracks to begin with. They were just experience- sound design play that I was working with.
2: And, and a few of these songs we've heard before in other versions. Mm-hmm. So how did those become fully realized versions mm-hmm. for
1: Adepta? It was the difference between bouncing things to play in sets versus not having to think about making them just for DJ sets anymore that they changed. Um, the older versions that I was sort of playing with had utility for gigs versus these songs, which had personal significance in the sense that I was the only person living with these versions for like two years, basically. So the older ones that I was playing with in the club versus what they turned into, I feel were closer to what I would want to say without direct audience feedback where you're like oh I have to change this version because this part didn't hit as hard as it did and this time it's more about a listening experience than it is a club experience I guess not since maybe
2: Colella's first thing this is the most personal project from Fade to Mind which is exciting I have more to say about Kunk and that collective and what it means to me but for Fade to Mind of course is like a label that has pretty much like fulfilled a lot of childhood dreams for (laughs) the type of music (laughs) I wanted to hear after growing up on a healthy diet of like Dark Child and Shakespeare and Candy Burress you know (laughs) like knowing that like I thought was hoping my adult future would have those sounds expanded on and um, move Black Bubblegum Pop to like a bit more of a production heavy kind of thing so that's what I've always gone to the label for Wow, and I really didn't think that we were going to get a full-length project from you. I did either. And I'm sure that it was labor-intensive.
1: <laughs> the, the labor was... It's kind of just left for a long time. Like, there'd be, like, months where I wouldn't change a song, but I'd listen to it. I tend to work very slowly and deliberately in all aspects of my life. Um, I gestate things a lot in my head before I can find ways to finish them in a formal sense, as in export a file to be mastered, to be released. I like process more than I like product. So the time and the lack of pressure, I was feeling as like a nightlife person. At some point I stopped worrying about something being too late and Felt lucky to have the chance to see it through as far as I needed to. Yeah. So, what is the timeline for
2: making this record?
1: Hmm. I mean, some of probably these, not so linear. <laughs> some but. of these are pieces of things that may have existed even before. Maybe like 2012 were some of these old project files. I don't export. of the tracks that I make, which is a strange little fetish that I developed due to refusing to get an external hard drive for a long time. Okay. So it was, it started as a sort of practical choice that I wouldn't actually bounce a WAV file until I thought something was playable. And then that turned into, you know, hundreds of sort of abstract beat loops and sound collage stuff that I just had lying in there. So some of the tracks are born from pieces of those. So that could be, you know, that's like six years ago versus things that I started about a year ago. So there's a huge range of pieces of things that have sort of worked their way into the record. Mm -hmm. And many things that sit adjacent to it that were unreleased or are going to be like bonus tracks or whatever that are also part of that same orbit. But like some of them were made and modified a few weeks before they went to mastering. Um, but it was, it was like meeting, I mean, Marco, I've known for like a really long time, uh, false witness, but meeting uh, Yulan Shyboy, I had a lot of questions musically, particularly around issues around like queer Caribbean music, all those kinds of things that I was like constantly looking for answers for in some of my older work. And then um, in particular, both Dion Tigerpaw and Shyboy uh, shy boy, Yulan. They gave me more significant answers to those questions than I've ever received and therefore felt I could stop asking them publicly and start just quietly observing and learning. So that was a huge, amazing sort of moment and the ability to collaborate with Yulan and to be like really close friends and everything. It's Yulan <laughs> has a documentary coming out that is going to change a lot of things around conversations around queer Caribbean production and identity. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it, but I have fewer questions after seeing this piece. Let's just put it that way. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm amazing. excited for it's that. It's amazing. <laughs> Can we talk about Trinidad? Yes. Yes. I went to Trinidad specifically because I felt that I'd already been there. And I know it's weird to say, but I'll explain. So I am the first in my family to break a Navy tradition, which I'm totally cool with but was still kind of odd that my grandfather and my father at some point were both briefly stationed in Trinidad and would always speak about Trinidad in a very reverential way. I was lucky to come from a relatively progressive upbringing and therefore was able to learn to ask more critical questions about how systematic racism lives, even amongst liberals. (laughs) So understanding power and coloniality through like a family history is uh, something I felt a lot of unresolved responsibility for and then when I was able to study abroad under some really incredible scholars and theorists at the University of the West Indies and have a very mind expanding understanding of how I relate to other places in the world um I hadn't been out of the country before that point and I was down there for like a year and we we didn't do normal study abroad stuff like we made friends really quick and therefore got like a really cool insight and went to like lots of gay parties and were in carnival bands and didn't really have Any of the financial exchanges with like resorty type stuff that people thought we were going to have. And we were a very mixed group of Americans as well who went abroad uh, racially. So that really, I think, helped sort of our our cohort and like our experience there. But it changed my life in ways that I can't remember what it was like beforehand. And I think that being in Carnival and having sort of a weird transcendental experience when. I played a character who was based off of drunk US sailors who would come down and cause disasters when they were on shore leave, and playing that character, like, sort of contained in Carnival, with, like, a super high degree of authenticity, in this strange way, I had a, I had sort of, like, a, a, my brain, I felt like a, a physical twist in my brain that I can only ascribe to sort of, like, the part where people get hit spiritually and when they feel it physically and yeah i don't think things have ever been the same since and i went down already really liking dancehall and being familiar with calypso and Soca, but not understanding its role and uh seeing it like work and do social work and have like a lot of like understanding that like the binge partying is a uniquely American concept I feel and that when people integrate that sort of music into everyday settings that aren't like sanctioned off to like the club or nightlife or something like that it might be much socially healthier (laughs) so I think that's something that brought into my understanding of what like club culture and community in the club could and should be. It's like sort of a communal chasing of this carnivalesque escape rather than pretending to be in a movie or a music video.
2: Yeah. I think partying without purpose is a very Euro-Western mm-hmm. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, that's something I always want to address, especially when I find myself in situations like that. Like historicizing why it's yeah. so shitty. Yeah. But usually I mean, in the moment, I feel trapped. <laughs> so, like, yeah, like trapped, and I'm just going to have to spend more money to get out of this yeah. situation. Yeah. But, well, thank you for speaking so directly about the personal transformation you went through at Trinidad. What questions were unanswered upon leaving Trinidad?
1: Oh, keep it to music in particular. Sure. Because I was like a hardcore raver when i went down i was like really into jungle and happy hardcore and hard style and uh primarily raga jungle and the first times that i was encountering like 160 bpm like road march soca i was immediately like how can this inform hard rave music because i want them both at the same time (laughs) and i would do that i'd listen to when i was first down there at sometimes because there would be like loud fast soca all the time around certain times of year so i'd walk around with an earbud in on like an old ass ipod listening to hardcore music at roughly the same bpm and sort of djing it in my head i wasn't djing actively at that point but I was inclined to do so afterwards because of the DIY sort of self-merging of two sound sources. And that always stuck with me, and I've always kind of been chasing that, but I'm also never trying to do it directly. So I think the question I walked away with is like, how can this be a point of exchange versus like a new genre or like... Disparate elements being smashed together. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: as dance hall goes this is just
1: a question I wanted to ask you but what are your favorite rhythms hot water uh huh I think is and anything by froggy mad spider there was a weird effect and I'm still kind of reeling from this and I think a lot of people are too like the way that like the major laser phenomenon <laughs> started directly influencing dance hall production like that isn't major laser was just a really weird experience and Everything got really big and overproduced and stuff. But Mad Spider, Froggy, who actually worked with Mage Lazer on several occasions, but all of his productions sound really at home in more techie dance hall type sets, but also like straight up dance hall sets. So Hot Water is probably my favorite of the last like 10 years, I'd say. I really, really, really like everything on Dr. Darling's Rhythm, which is by Seed. Particularly, "It's a Pity," which is my favorite song of all time, and I think I've probably listened to more times than any other song ever. I actually sample the beginning of the Doctor Darling's rhythm in two tracks on my record, uh, repitched and just the hits from them. But they've managed to work its way in there. I've tried to remix "It's a Pity." I have the acapella for "It's a Pity," and I've been trying to remix it for about ten years. Uh, It's just I can't do it because I like it's too much of a relationship. Uh, between the beat and the song. So anything Ricky Blaze, so even though there was kind of like not really a a, a proper rhythm, the um, sort of early trance hall of like, I'm going to say like 2008 maybe that was trance hall, 2007, like right when I started DJing a lot, but um, the cut them off and all of the sort of uh, Brooklyn trance hall micro rhythms that kind of came from that, that style. And I'm always still like all his new stuff, like Uptown Julie and all that kind of stuff, too. And then I think the best final one, Inevitable. Yeah, I think Inevitable. It's Again, it was like sort of an accidental trance hall, like really ravey stabs. Tanya Stevens is on it, a bunch of other people were on it uh, by Scatta. So that era, I feel, is... It took a weird turn because it went into EDM back this was all kind of before EDM proper, before sort of the standardization of synth patches and fill sounds and all that kind of stuff that made it sort of the the great virus of a genre that spilled over into every other subgenre. Back when it was still less informed and like using rave stuff was from an older generation of rave music and software. So it had more of kind of like a vintage sort of quality. So Inevitable feels to me more futuristic than contemporary like big room EDM dance hall by Major Laser or something like that. Again, Major Laser really affected dance hall in so many ways. And, I know. It, and again, like a lot of people got a lot of money from it. So I'm not even like doing like a, a one-sided critique on it. It's just something that has anyone who's liked the crossover between Electronic and, and Caribbean music has had to deal with in some capacity over the last, like, you know, eight years or whatever. I find dance hall so
2: interesting because the import export control of it, it's hard not to have some grand conspiracy <laughs> about yeah. why certain things get fast tracked in their export, you know? Um, and I wanted to know about your favorite rhythms because one that I've always been kind of personally fixated on is Diwali. And how in 2002, there was a six-month period where, like, top songs I heard constantly all had that rhythm. Like, exactly. With very little mutations. mm -hmm. (laughs) But Kevin Little, Wayne Wonder, Rihanna, all this shit, Mm -hmm. like, had... It's interesting to me how Dancehall seems to have these moments in mass culture here where it's not ever really given space (laughs) to just seem... Listly move into even though so many people are listening to it you know there's like spurts right. Right? like it will and
1: and then there's reg- people like major laser who really distort it even more under the guise of increasing its bandwidth which is what's interesting the, the 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 mission statement of that part of the the global dance sort of industry has a lot of evidence that they're doing a lot of good and to dispute that evidence often gets into the realm of deciding uh, what opportunities artists from these these cultures get to take. And I don't think anyone really has a good place to critique that. Like everyone's just kind of doing what they what they need to do. But it's the studio system of production right. that that is the backbone of that. That is where the the power is located, not just on the payouts, but on the actual construction of sound. And then the fidelity that comes with that sort of big room, this is why I don't like a lot of good synths, is because there's so much fidelity that it's hard to question it. Every frequency is hit perfectly at all given times. Any sort of mistakes are completely ironed out versus the something of the, the functional beauty and simplicity of so many versions of Diwali going around at that, you know, and they're, they still slap today Which is what's crazy Yeah Where it's The relationship between The song on top of The rhythm Especially in Diwali's case And how many of those songs Could get popular On one Rhythm And stay popular there's something else going on there, other than just great production. Yeah,
2: it's and spiritual. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. Like, but
1: that's the nature of
2: drums, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to not argue that there's another dimension there. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That's why, like the gatekeeping that you know you mentioned is especially problematic when something is pure and then is going to be transmitted regardless and hit the right people and move. You know, across borders like that. Yeah. Let's talk about the vocalists on Adepta. Mm-hmm. There's two songs in particular that are going to appear twice on the record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Different versions, yeah. Mm-hmm. Be a Boy, so and um, I'm spacing on the other name. But can you tell me about that process, those relationships, the decision to bring them in? There were
1: quite a few other vocal tracks that didn't make it, um, which is, and then even with the. With Dewdrop, which is with uh, Kat CHR, who is uh, a singer-songwriter who I've been friends with on the internet for a long time. They're really cool. Um, they recorded that song like a long time ago, and it was on different versions of everything, and we wanted to have sort of an immediate one that I'd been working with without... It's just a simple, you know instrumental vocal one so i'm not even sure how they're splitting all that up the only i think the the vocal one is going to be digital or some some combination thereof um and then the boy with a is two there were three different versions of that one rhythm that uh Uh, I kept permutating and we're like sort of cross-pollinating each other and there were two different two different um, beat-structured ones. So one was just the instrumental and then uh, Adui had uh, a lot of vocals that we were kind of playing with for a while and then settled on sort of just like having a a more subtle relationship with the song and just sort of like coming in and out um, which is how I like working with vocalists. I'm not really... Um, comfortable giving people like songwriting notes or anything like that. I'm much more comfortable with them saying a lot and then together with editing, we sort of boil down like what the actual song's gonna say um, because I have no experience or interest in, in that side of things. I'm much more comfortable working with a vocalist who just like, for me, it's more about how uh, I can serve the vocal in more of, like, a, a material sense than, like, oh, I want it to say this. Like, right. it, with Be A Boy, like, the sort of um, gender play that com- came with it was pretty much just an accident of editing and and cool little hooks that Adui put in the, in the um, recording that she sent me. And... Uh, we were able to kind of use it as sort of like a, a little a little flip versus just um, a full on song, and I think the less that it becomes like a full on traditional song for me, the better. Like I just like yeah things getting a little messy because there's yeah. no one. This isn't a pop song. Like no one's gonna be like, oh, this isn't gonna get played on like a pop radio station because it's too weird. It's like it's already too freaking weird. Just let it be even weirder. <laughs>
2: You and Adui have great chemistry, though, across releases. And every time I see your names together, I get very excited. Because for the people who songs like Be A Boy hit like pop songs, Mm -hmm. that's what we're looking
1: for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, I'm just like continually in awe of Adui because... Uh, she can do so much like and she hasn't even begun to hit the levels of exposure that i know are coming for her too like she's she's getting good features and press and shows and all that stuff it's not like that but like i think a adui could be like fucking huge yeah she's a real one yeah Um, (laughs) and she's can dj really well and she's a vocalist and she's a producer and she can write <laughs> and she's like in bands and everything. Like she's, she's a, she's a genuine musician. She's not just like someone who's like pretty good at some of the parts of it. Uh, she's like a, a real genuine musician. So is Kat CHR as well. Mm-hmm. Um, her material is more on an indie spectrum. Um, I was interested in working with her because we had similar sort of views of like, culture moving and all that kind of stuff so yeah good this has been
2: a really great interview um i feel like i've hit all the notes i really needed to is there anything else you want to talk about though um
1: i think the 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 thing is is just understanding like power and responsibility and all this kind of stuff and having to make specific sacrifices to like not be the bad guy, I think is something that like not enough people talk about, um, particularly about like withdrawing. And I think like not being super present in like DJing for like a long time and, and, you know, not really like trying to like jump into different trends and genre stuff right now has been like, in some ways, like something that like was really frustrating at first, but then became like really liberating and, I wish there were more ways that people could talk about what moving on without stopping is like. <laughs> and I think that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm um, in a lot of ways just cause like I am doing work with for lack of a better term, political movements online and I'm finding that, there's a lot of questions I was trying to get about power and racism and, and, and oppression and all these things in the club that just, there were no answers to. And sometimes you just, you know, through either people's activism or their work or just their lives, like those things need to be highlighted as part of life, not something that you can replicate in the club. Um, There's incredible, movements in the club right now with like political ramifications and better representation. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. They totally are. But like there's a danger that resistance can be fetishized and commodified really quickly in spaces where there's a lot of like cool hunters around. And that's a real problem that uh, big city nightlife tends to have. It also uh, does a complete disservice to language, you know, (laughs) when that
2: gets distorted and the meaning and intention is lost because it's mangled by the wrong people, then you can't have a safe space without it being a joke, you know,
1: (laughs) yeah, and that's dangerous. And when there's financial incentives so few and far between, uh, no one can be blamed for taking those incentives. Uh, That doesn't make them... Wrong. It doesn't even necessarily make the people who offer them wrong. There are places where ideas get turned into money, and nightlife has always been one of those places. And I think that channeling funds and resources to people who were denied them historically women, people of color, uh, queer people is something that is its own political process. Um, and needs to be aggressively pursued and every time it is, is and it the payout paid. is important pers- part of that process exactly you know? um, but it's important to not forget who the ownership of these spaces are and where a lot of the funding is ultimately coming from and why it's going there um, again these are open-ended questions that I do I don't I feel I have fewer answers to than I used to that's the nature of these questions yeah though. they're not
2: bullet point questions yeah you mentioned moving on without stopping, and and you've mentioned a couple times this period of stopping. Is this part of why you
1: stopped? Did you really stop, or what does stopping mean for you? For me, it's about well, I I was not in New York for like a really 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 long time. Um, even before I officially moved, I was spending very very little time here. I was really really sick for a really really long time, and the at some point, nightlife wasn't physically healthy. Um, and I needed to recalibrate to be able to get better. And thankfully that's happened. And, um, I'm not back in New York for nightlife, unfortunately. Uh, I'm back in New York for a job and I like being in Brooklyn and I feel like I'm understanding Brooklyn as a daytime or uh, not club experience for the first time, and it feels really good. It's and, important, yeah. yeah. And I and I you know completely moved to New York just for nightlife before, so I was primed in a position to have sort of a weird, distorted, fetishized view of where I was living. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's changed. And I think that I wouldn't have gotten that if I didn't leave the club for a while. I totally like am interested in nightlife and shows and dance music and all those sorts of things. It's just. Not something I have the interest in signaling every week right now. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't be consumed by it. But it's, of course,
2: one of the more consuming arenas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, There's some give and take there.
0: Visit the links in the description of this episode for more information on Rizla and Fade to Mind. If you're in New York on Saturday July 14th, you should pull up to Rizla's album release party at Goodroom. I will be there, dancing away my moral volatility, emptiness and feelings of lurking misfortune. Very special thanks to Brian Freeberg for opening his home and veritable trove of seltzer water to me for this interview. Record Room is produced and hosted by me, Rory Felker. This episode was mastered by Federico Ferglia. Its theme music is by Dow Anthony and artwork by Tom McQuaid. Goodbye.